0: Well, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John 17. If you're using the, the blue uh, pew Bibles and the seat backs in front of you, uh, you sh- should be able to find that on page 903. 903, John 17. Uh, we are beginning a, a short series on this chapter. Next three weeks, we'll be in John 17 looking at uh, the prayer of our great high priest, Jesus, uh, just before um, he is uh, arrested, tried, crucified. Um, this comes at the conclusion of the, uh, the Upper Room Discourse, his last meal with his disciples. Please excuse me, I, I'm not sure why, but the voice apparently is fading, so just bear, bear with me here. We'll pray for God's help there. Um, this prayer in John 17 is uh, one of the most famous prayers in all of Scripture, uh, perhaps in all of uh, history. It's certainly the longest prayer uh, of Jesus's that is recorded in the Bible. We know that Jesus prayed. We know that he prayed often. And yet it is really this prayer alone that is recorded for us in full rather than in summary fashion. And it is a prayer the likes of which the world has not seen since. Um, J.C. Ryle commenting on this chapter this prayer, he says, It is needless to say that the chapter before us contains many deep things. It could hardly be otherwise. He that reads the words spoken by one person of the Blessed Trinity to another person, by the Son to the Father, must surely be prepared to find much that he cannot fully understand, much that he has no line to fathom. There are sentences, words, and expressions in the 26 verses of this chapter, which no one probably has ever unfolded completely. We have not minds to do it, or to understand the matters it contains, if we could, but there are great truths in the chapter which stand out clearly and plainly on its face. And to these truths we shall do well to direct our best attention. And so what, what he's saying there is we are given a, a glimpse, a peek behind the curtain we're invited into the inner sanctum and we are permitted to overhear but a few words of the eternal conversation that has been going on between the Father and the Son. These are deep things, and so we will not certainly, perfectly, clearly understand everything said here. But as Ryle notes, there are great truths here for us. Truth. Christ wants us to know and to understand that he desires for us to grasp. And so rather than trying to understand every possible thing said, we will direct our attention over these next three weeks to those truths which stand out clearly and plainly on its face. And pray that God would be pleased to, to give us much help as we do. As we consider this prayer of Jesus, it's important to note the point at his life in which he offers it. I mentioned briefly a moment ago, at this point in the Gospel, John is building to the climax of the story. Uh, nearly uh, um, half the, the Gospel is the, the final week of Jesus' life. And um, here we come to uh, the, just before the death and resurrection of Jesus. And how do we get there? Well, his public ministry uh, essentially comes to an end in John 11 and 12. Um, the religious, leader, r- religious leaders had decided to uh, to kill Jesus and Lazarus because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and they didn't want word of that getting out. So they were just they were going to kill them, And so it says in John 11:54 that Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. And then in John 13 through 17, we have Jesus' Last Supper with his 12 closest disciples. There he institutes what we know to be the Lord's Supper. He sets an example um, of service for them by washing their feet. And he teaches them some very important things about his upcoming departure, known as what we call the, the, the Upper Room Discourse in 14 through 16. And, and there he specifically uh, is Instructing them how to prepare and to be ready for the suffering that they are going to endure in his absence when the world turns against him after it turns against them after it crucifies their Savior. And then he concludes the evening with an evening, uh, concludes the evening with a prayer. And this prayer is, is not a standalone prayer, it's not a prayer that you can really really grasp all the, the depths and the insights of it um, on its own. It's intri- intricately connected to all that's come before it in the Gospel. Um, and specifically, what had just come for it before it in the Upper Room Discourse. John begins, um, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes and said. That's John 17, 1. And so immediately following this discourse in the upper room, he prays. This prayer is, in many ways, an apt summary of the gospel up to this point as a whole. Its principles include many things like Jesus' obedience to the Father, the glorification of the Father through the death and the exaltation of Christ, the revelation of God in Christ, the choosing of the disciples out of the world, their mission to the world, the unity of the church modeled on the unity of the Father and the Son, and then the, the final destiny of God's people in his presence. And we see the significance of this prayer even further when we consider who offers it and when. The God-man, Jesus Christ, offered this prayer just prior to his return to the Father through the brutality of the cross. So as we turn our attention to this prayer, I want to note its structure briefly. Um, And the prayer fits fairly well into uh, three sections. In the first section, verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. In the second section, Jesus prays for his disciples, specifically the ones with him there, verses 6 through 19. And then in verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for the church as a whole. Today, we will be looking at verses 1 to 5, and I've entitled the sermon, This is Eternal Life, and the key words for our worshipers in training are prayer, glorify, and eternal life. And so, I want to read um, the whole prayer first, and then we'll we'll dive in and look at um, a couple things that I'll mention in a second from verses 1 to 5. And so, as we look together, verses 1 to 5 of this marvelous prayer, there are three things I want to note. Jesus asked that God would glorify him. He speaks of his work and obedience to the Father, and he expresses his desire that his people who experience eternal life would experience it to the full in the knowledge of God. And so we'll consider those three themes. Jesus' request for glory, the work and the obedience of the Son, and the necessity of the knowledge of God for eternal life. So first, we'll see Jesus' request for glory. He begins the prayer by asking God to glorify the Son. He says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He picks this up again in verse 5, asking God to glorify Him with the glory that He had before the world ever existed. And so, there are three uh, thoughts that I want to consider with you, set before you, about this request for glory. Uh, first, in verse 1, Jesus mentions uh, an hour that has arrived. He says, the hour has come. Well, what, what hour is that? What hour has come? It is the hour first mentioned to his mother all the way back in chapter 2 of the Gospel. In 2.4, Mary asks Jesus to solve a problem at a wedding in Canaan. But he tells her, he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And again, in chapter 4, 21 through 24, Jesus speaks of an hour coming when Jews and Samaritans alike will worship God in spirit and in truth. In chapter 5, 25 through 29, Jesus says there's an hour coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In chapter 7, verse 30, and chapter 8, verse 20, we're told that the Jews were unable to arrest Jesus because his hour had not yet come. Over and over in the Gospel, we have this reference to a coming hour. And when we get to chapter 12, remember I said chapter 11 and 12 is really the transition point from when his public ministry has ended and he is now set, dead set, to the cross. In chapter 12, verses 23 through 26, uh, there are some Gentiles who had come to Jesus' disciples wishing to see Jesus. And upon hearing the the request, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In John 16, the chapter just before this one, in in the, the very end of the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus uses the word hour in this way as this reference to, not like it's 11 o'clock hour, but uh, a specific future event coming. He uses it five times in John 16. And he, he ends John 16. He says, Behold, the hour is coming. This is verse 32. He says, Indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that, you may, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so here in John 17.1, Jesus' prayer is uh, a place where he yet again confesses to the Father that the hour has come. All through the Gospel, there's an hour coming in John 12, it's, it's kind of here, but not yet. And then Jesus says here in John 17, to the Father, the hour has come. It is the hour to which every word of revelation up to this point had pointed. Specifically since Genesis 3.15 and on, this hour was the awaited hour for the people of God. It is the hour of Jesus' glorification. And yet, it's not glorification in the way that we might think. Certainly not in the way the disciples would have thought. It is the hour of the crown as obtained through the cross. D.A. Carson writes, The hideous profanity of Golgotha means nothing less than the Son's glorification. And Jesus... He highlights this in chapter 12, where he really first picks up this idea that the hour has come. He says in verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So this is right after he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he talks about a seed falling, dying, and bearing fruit fruit. And then down in verses 27 to 28, he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus had come to this hour, and it was here. It was time. As John says in chapter 13, verse 1, the hour had come for Jesus to depart from this world. And that's exactly what he does. After he finishes the prayer, he departs for Gethsemane with his disciples. He is betrayed by Judas, arrested, falsely tried, beaten, and crucified. On the cross, he breathes his last and then is taken down and buried in a tomb, not his own. And he does it all for the sinner's gain, bearing the wrath of man and, more significantly, the wrath of God. This hour is the hour of redemption. It is the hour for which creation has longed since it was cursed and thrown into chaos at the sin of Adam. The hour, Jesus says, the hour has come for Adam the second to undo all that Adam the first had done. A second thought worth pondering here in this request for glory made by Jesus is um, when he says uh, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And in a lot of ways this harkens us back to John 1.1 that the Word, who we know to be Christ, existed in the beginning with God through whom all the world was made. Jesus, the uncreated Son of God, enjoyed glory and majesty unspeakable before the world was ever made. This is what Paul references in Philippians 2 when he says that Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That verse is often misunderstood, but Jesus, he he did not give up his divinity in the Incarnation. Rather, it was the enjoyment of the glory that he had before the Incarnation. And so Jesus says the hour has come, yes, for the the glorification of the Son of Man, both in the cross, the glory and agony of Calvary, but also the glory of the crown. Calvary is one of the great mysteries of the world. His glorification is the gruesome death on the cross, but it's, it is the means of the, the glory of the crown. And so Jesus, the eternal Son of God, here asks for this restoration of His glory. And then uh, an, a third thought for consideration under this request for glory is, is the reciprocal nature. Because he doesn't just ask for this glory merely for himself. Right? Verse 1 Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus' life was lived in pursuit of the glory of God. Jesus never lived, even for a moment, for his own gain at the expense of someone else. Even at this moment, where he seeks the restoration of his own glory before the world ever existed, he seeks it so that he may continue glorifying God. And so that is the request for glory. Well, secondly, he talks about his work. In verse 4, he says that he, uh, he glorified God by accomplishing the work that God gave him to do. And what is the work that God gave Christ to do? Well, in verse 2, he says that he was given authority over all flesh in order that he might give eternal life to all whom the Father had given him. That is the work the Father gave the Son, to give eternal life to all who were his. And it is the completion of this work that serves as the ground for Jesus' request to be glorified. Jesus is saying, glorify me, that I may glorify you, and do this because I accomplished the work you gave me to do. We, we reference the uh, Uh, his words in John 12, where he he said that uh, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's Jesus' description of the work he had come to do. He had come to die. And he died so that in his death he might bear much fruit. All throughout the Gospel, Jesus spoke often of doing the will of his Father. And this was Jesus' life mission, to obey the will of God. And he did so in life, and he does so now in death. His death, in fact, is perhaps the supreme example of his obedience to God. A la Philippians 2. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so, what is it, this giving of eternal life?
1: How does Jesus
0: accomplish this? Well, enter the Gospel. God had created the world, and the world was very good. He had created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in this very good world to rule over it all. In a sense, Adam had been given authority over all flesh. But instead, he was ruled by the serpent. And at the serpent's suggestion, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they brought death and chaos and sin into the world. Adam and his descendants would be cut off from God, doomed to die, to suffer eternally for their sin against an infinite and holy God. This is the state every person is born. We are are conceived in sin. We are sinners because of our guilt in Adam, and we sin ourselves. And yet, this infinite and holy God is also gracious and merciful and abounding in abounding and steadfast love. He promised Adam and Eve that the woman would bear a son and he would crush the head of the serpent and redeem his people. Unknown to them, it would be 4,000 years before that baby boy would be born. And during all that time, from Genesis to the birth of Christ, God sovereignly worked in the life of his people under the Old Covenant to keep them holy and pure, separate from the pagan nations around them so that the promised seed might come. Jesus, descended from Adam, from Noah, from Abraham, and David, was born in Bethlehem by the Virgin Mary. Jesus, the Son of God, was born without a sin nature like we have. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned even once. He obeyed God's law perfectly in every respect, in his thoughts, his words, and his deeds. But he didn't come merely to live a sinless life and set a good example for us. That would have only made us despair even further, to see what perfection would look like with no hope of attaining it. He came to live a sinless life so that he might be fit to offer himself as a substitute for us. See, when we fell in Adam, and when we sin against God in our own lives, we rebel against his law. We deserve to be judged for that. Scripture tells us the wages of sin is death. Sin against an infinitely holy God requires an infinitely awful death. Eternal death. Jesus, however, stood in our place. He bore God's wrath so that through him we would be saved from that very wrath. And this is the work that Jesus speaks of here. He had lived the sinless life, and the hour had come for him to die the sinner's death. And so I entreat you now. Friends, if you're here this morning not in Christ, you've not put your faith, your hope, and your love in God through Christ, would you do that now? Sinner, you are invited, commanded even by God to stop living upon yourself, to stop relying upon yourself, and to live and to rely upon God. This is the means by which Christ gives eternal life to those who are his through his life, death, and resurrection. Faith in that unites us to him, the source of life. And he offers it. He offers this life to every person in this room this morning. And so that brings us to a a final point of consideration. Um, the, The means by which we obtain this life and the nature of this life. The knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. These first five verses in John 17 um, have a bit of a chiastic structure to it, which if you know what if you don't know what that is, it's so it's, it's a way of it's a literary device where you would you'd write an idea, and then at the beginning, in the very end of it, you would kind of mirror that idea. So what we see here is right, in the beginning, Jesus asked for glory. And in the end, in verse 5, he asks for glory. And then kind of you work your, the next section over, two similar ideas. So in verse 2 and verse 4, he talks about the, essentially the work that he had been given. Right? He'd been given authority of all, all, all flesh to uh, give eternal life, and he had accomplished the work God gave him to do. And So there's similarities there in 2 and 4. And that leaves verse 3 sort of, hanging out there in the middle with, with no parallel. And that's because it's, the idea is that the, the central thought here is what you see in verse 3. It was sort of their way of uh, italicizing something, perhaps, right? They would put it in the middle, and that drew, drew your attention to it. It's what the ancient writers would do. They didn't have computers to, uh, to type with italics. Well, why am I telling you this? It's because I think it's important to see that so that we we get the centrality of verse 3. Some commentators see verse 3 essentially as a a parenthetical assertion. He's talking about something, and then he just, oh, by the way, this is what eternal life is, just to be clear. But I think instead Jesus is making a very uh, important argument he he very clearly has in mind i think what uh, the importance of them knowing what eternal life is jesus seeks glory from god for accomplishing the work he came to do which was what to give eternal life to his own people and so central to that idea in this passage is the question what is eternal life heaven for many people is simply the place where all their best dreams come true. Eternal life is uh, unending life in a place where you get everything your heart desires. Bad people go to hell to suffer probably, and good people get to go to heaven to get everything they ever wanted. And all of it is completely void of a personal and almighty God. There's an incredibly pervasive idea in our culture that eternal life is baseball with dad. But this kind of impersonal vending machine type notion of what eternal life is, is is very opposed to what Jesus says he says he came to give his people eternal life, and he says that eternal life is to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. I, I, I trust we've, we've all imagined what eternity would be like. Theologians and philosophers have mused for centuries on that very idea. Ask yourself, think now, what, what will heaven be like? Is it, as I said, it's like, is it an eternal baseball game? A giant movie theater with every movie you'd ever like to, to watch available for display? Is it a party with all of your closest friends and family? Is it a reunion with deceased pets? That does not sound like heaven, but to me. I don't know. We, maybe we want crazy things, but we've all kind of imagined what is eternity like? What is heaven like? Are we naked angel babies on clouds with harps? Or is it a little bit more real, but just—it it is whatever we want. Now, many of those things that I just named, we can't say that there's no possible aspect that they might be a part of heaven. It's not an immaterial existence. It's a physical one. We will live and probably work and have hobbies and all of those kinds of things. But what's at the center of it? What is the essence of eternity? Is it simply comfort? Is it basically a place that as long as I'm not suffering in hell, then that's heaven? This is the oft-asked question, right? If heaven, if the Lord was not in heaven, Do you want to go there? Would you be content if you had a giant house, whatever food you wanted to eat, a soulmate, and whatever you thought necessary at your disposal? You had some genie, perhaps, to fetch any item in the universe for you. Would you be content with that if God was not there? If so, consider carefully what Jesus says here. He says the essence of eternal life is the knowledge of God. To know God and to know His Son, Jesus Christ, is what makes eternal life worth living. And this is the heart of this first part of Jesus' prayer. Jesus' work was to bring eternal life to His people, so that they may know the only true God. This was the hope of the Old Testament saints. The promise of God to Israel was that He would be their God. They would be His people. Consider Habakkuk 2.14. There is a day, it says, coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Like the waters cover the sea. Is that what you want? Now, one other aspect here on this knowledge of God, it is not some mystical knowledge of, like, the divine. It's not just a knowledge of, of the infinite void of, of wonder and mystery all around us. It is an intensely personal knowledge. It is a knowledge of God, the only true God and his son Jesus Christ. The only way to know God is to know his son. John tells us this in 1:18. It is the one who is at the father's side who has made him known. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14:6 The only way to the Father is through him. He tells them later, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so this knowledge of God isn't abstract, it's personal. It's not merely volitional, or sorry, it's not really intellectual either, just abstract kind of intellectual knowledge, but it's moral and volitional. The knowledge of God that constitutes eternal life entails faith, trust, love, wonder, worship, adoration, and fellowship, to name but a few of its characteristics. And so this is what Jesus says he has come to do, to give eternal life to all whom the Father had Mm -hmm. given him. Well, let's, let's close with two points of application. First, notice the significance of Jesus' dis- decision to pray in this moment. Think about what it says with his. Uh, think about what it says about his communion with God. He says, "The hours come; the destined hour has arrived for untold suffering." Perhaps he might have been tempted to, to just turn in to himself to despair, hang his hat on kind of the the fatalistic outlook that, well, here it is. Just grit my teeth and get through it. It was time for him to die. Why bother anymore? And yet he doesn't respond that way. He gives himself to prayer. He turns to his father and he utters here in the upper room and he prays in the garden unmatched prayers in all of history. Might we learn from the Lord in this matter? Whatever circumstances we might, in which we might find ourselves, whatever doom seems to impend, what if we would give ourselves over to prayer? Believer, don't let yourself fall prey to Satan's trap. Even when things are darker than they've ever been, go to the Lord in prayer. A church I attended in college had a weekly prayer meeting uh, on Sunday evenings. Uh, And we would pray, obviously, but we would also sing. And one of the songs we often sang uh, was called, Take It to the Lord in Prayer. And here are some lyrics to that song. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise and forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou will find a solace there. Jesus, in his hour of need, prayed. He didn't fail. He didn't fall. He knows our weaknesses even when we don't pray when we should. He is there praying for us. And what we'll see in the weeks to come is that this is this is like the copy, the script. What is Jesus praying for you? This. Well, a second thing, a final thing. Thank God that your salvation rests in the hands of a gracious Savior. Jesus has been given authority over all flesh to bestow eternal life upon his own. Consider how serious he takes such a task. The glory of God and the salvation of men are the two central thoughts in this prayer. Next to God's glory, Jesus is most interested in his people being saved. So thank him that your salvation rests in his merciful hands. And this is just the the beginning of what we'll see in this prayer from our great high priest. We've considered briefly his prayer for himself. Lord willing, in the next two weeks, we will see how he turns his attention to his disciples there and unto us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you through our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who prays for us now, interceding for us, who lives forever to make intercession for us. We ask that you would take these truths, and we admit we have merely skimmed the surface, but we ask that these truths that stand on the face of it, that we would see them and know them, and that you would drive them into our hearts, that much fruit might be born for years to come, for eternity. Lord, may our weakness not be a hindrance, but in our weakness may your power shine through. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.